This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're exploring a strikingly contrarian argument about global population and its impact on the world to come. It's often said that demography is destiny, and conventional wisdom has it that the human population is going to grow explosively throughout this century. My guests today say no. Not only this is wrong, but this is wildly wrong. They argue that human population will top out around the middle of this century, and by the year 2100, the world's population will be back down to where it is today. Their argument has profound implications for everything from economic growth to geopolitics to immigration. To unpack their argument, I'm joined by the two authors of a provocative new book, Empty Planet, The Shock of Global Population Decline. I have with me Daryl Bricker, who is the global CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, a market research and consulting firm. Welcome to Deep Dish, Daryl. Thanks for having me on, Brian. And also on today is John Ibbotson, who is a writer-at-large at the Globe and Mail newspaper in Canada. John, it's great to have you as well. Hello, Brian. Also joining our conversation is the Chicago Council on Global Affairs' own senior fellow on public opinion and foreign policy, Dina Smeltz. Welcome, Dina. It's great to have you part of the conversation as well. Good morning, everybody. So, Daryl and John, I want to start with this you know, fascinating and really provocative argument um, in your book that the population Um, projections of humans going forth and multiplying um, uh, ad infinitum and creating a huge population, overpopulation boom, is wrong. Why, what do you see as the trajectory of population and what's, what's driving it? What's different than the overpopulation people think? Well, it's, it's based on an understanding of how the UN models population and what some of the flaws in the modeling might be. Uh, So the UN uh, models out a scenario that says that the population is going to grow to 11.2 billion people uh, by the year 2100. And they do that based on three variables. One of them is aging. Uh, Another one is mortality. Actually, it's it's mortality, uh, fertility, and mobility. So people moving would be mobility. Uh, and the problem that they have with this model is, even though it's been really accurate in the past, is that the culture around this model, uh, so the culture that this model is trying to predict, is changing so rapidly that the model really can't accommodate for it. So what's happened is, uh, not just us, but a series of demographers worldwide uh, have looked at um, what uh, the uh, the UN is projecting and said, you know, based on what you've got, we don't think fertility is going to be high. And since the single biggest driver of whether or not a population population grows as its level of fertility, we have serious questions about whether or not we're going to reach 11.2 billion people. And the consensus on the other side of this is that we're going to end up somewhere between 8 and 9 billion people by mid-century, and then it's going to start to decline to a point where we're very likely to be around uh, the same number as we are today on, on, on planet Earth. Now, I should say that the point of the population peaking and declining is not a controversial point. Even the UN's modeling shows that. It's a question of how high it gets at the time that it does peak and how rapid uh, and deep the decline is going to be. That's where the point of disagreement is. So everybody agrees that this is going to be happening. It's just a a question of how high uh, the population is going to get and how quickly it's going to come down. And what are the drivers that you see that are going to limit the extent to which population grows and will cause us to then go in the other direction? 
<clears throat> there's only really one driver, and it's the one driver that the UN modeling fails to account for. Uh, that driver is urbanization. So um, we became a, a majority urban species uh, about a decade ago. Today, 55% of the world's population um, is urban. Uh, that urbanization is taking place primarily in developing countries. Um, and rapid urbanization in developing countries is producing in those countries a decline of fertility uh, that took you know, 150 years um, in the developed world. So we already have about two dozen countries uh, that are losing population every year. Japan, for example, uh, lost almost 450,000 people last year. But we also see uh, birth rates uh, falling rapidly in places like um, India and China uh, and, and in Brazil. Um, and the reason for that is fourfold. Daryl, I'll do the first two, you do the, <laughs> do the next two. <laughs> when, sure. you, when you urbanize, uh, for the, a bunch of things happen. The first thing is that a child ceases to be an asset and becomes a liability, um, ceases to be another pair of hands to work in the field and just becomes another mouth to feed. So there's an economic driver that says if you're going to move into a favela or a slum um, in a big urban area, you no longer need or want to have kids the way you, you did when you were living in the, in the countryside. The second is that when you move into an urban area, uh, women have access to education in a way they didn't have it when they were living in a rural environment. Uh, they may have access to uh, state-supported schools that weren't available for them. Um, they have access to media, uh, social media as well as conventional media. And they have access to other women who are great educators of each other. And when women acquire education, whether it's in the United States in the 1800s or Brazil um, in this decade, um, women start to become more empowered. And when they become more empowered, they begin to make demands. And one of the demands that they make is they don't want to have as many children as their mother did. Uh, Daryl, take it away. And part of that is the, the function of uh, a combination of the clan and religion. So uh, religion, in every place that becomes more urban, tends to get less, have less of a hold on the population. And if you're not having kids as a result of what you believe is God's will, and uh, you're really just doing it for the purposes of uh, experiencing the fullness of life, you're, you're actually pretty full after two. In fact, we did a survey around the world in 26 countries asking people what they thought the ideal family size was, and, and it is two. Uh, and Falling on religion is the influence of the clan. In the countryside, it's much, much stronger. So your family members, your aunts, your uncles, and others are telling me, telling you that you need to have kids. It's part of the of what you need to do on behalf of the family. In the city, your coworkers aren't asking you to do the same kind of thing. And not only are when women move to the city, do they become uh, they get more access to education, uh, they become, uh, you know, more uh, capable of being in the workforce. We also see that their labor rates are rising. And as their labor rates rise, that means that they're obviously more in the workforce. So the influence of their coworkers over the influence of their clans becomes quite profound, and it affects the, uh, the choices that they make because they see different role models. So that's basically what we're seeing uh, as a result of urbanization. So we know about some of the, the societies which have been on the you know, the front edge of this, places like Japan, South Korea, and I want to talk more about them in a moment. But 
how about you touch on this briefly, but what do you see going on in the in the developing world? I mean, the, the stories we hear of population growth in places like uh, countries throughout Africa and all is 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 this something that you expect to see or do we already see signs of this kind of dynamic at work? Well, <clears throat> this is the root of the disagreement uh, between the United Nations Population Division and uh, other demographers. The UN sees Sub-Saharan Africa especially as a basket case. They don't see um, women uh, acquiring much education or empowerment over the course of the century. They don't see birth rates coming down. It's a, pre- it's a pretty bleak scenario uh, that, that, that the UN has. But if you go in and look at what's happening in many of these countries, for example, we, we, uh, we looked at Kenya, which is a very important country in the eastern portion of sub-Saharan Africa. Well, Kenya has a very high fertility rate, but it is much lower than it used to be. And Kenyan's um, uh, demographers and statisticians point to uh, what they see is rapidly falling fertility rates. Well, why would that be? Kenya is urbanizing. The Kenyan government has mandated that girls and boys must have equal levels of education at the elementary level. And when you leave their equivalent of grade 8, you have to pass a a graduation exam. Um, And last year, uh, actually this came out after after we were done the book, last year uh, the results of those exams showed that there were as many girls as there were boys sitting for the exam in Kenya, and the girls had on average uh, higher marks than the boys. So we think, um, and indeed all the evidence on the ground suggests, that fertility rates in places like Kenya are going to decline much more rapidly than the UN demographers predict. So that's very helpful. So we see this trend going on. And now I want to kind of move us to what are the consequences of this? Because I think one of the things that was so striking to me was that so many of the challenges and the things that we're expecting uh, to occur in the world are dramatically changed if you shift your expectations on what population will look like to the kinds of a future that you're outlining. So let, let me just start with with economics. What are the economic consequences? I know that you, you point to countries that have already started to, to see this as, as kind of foreshadowing what is going to happen, but what are the implications? Well, I think Japan does a very good job of foreshadowing what could happen. I mean, they've Basically, you know, every new decade, they basically say another lost decade in Japan. If you have a, 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 an economy that is driven by consumption, particularly youthful consumption, this is going to be a problem for you. Uh, because a lot of those things that you buy for the first time that tend to drive economic growth, whether it's your first house or your first uh, refrigerator or your first car or whatever it is that you happen to be equipping as you create your own household, all of that is being delayed because people are not getting married as fast as they were. And then the kids that come out of uh, those those uh, uh, situations in which uh, people get together, the children that are produced by that, it's a smaller number. So every you know few years, every actually every year, we're going to see uh, a declining number of people who are going to be able to drive the economy through consumption. Uh, we're already seeing it in parts of the developed world. Uh, the middle class is obviously rising in the developed uh, developing world, so we're going to see some of that slack taken up by those populations, uh, at least in the short term. But in the longer term, they're going to go through the same thing that, say, for example, the population of Italy is going through right now. So from an economic perspective, uh, it is going to be really challenging unless we can figure out a way to start treating older segments of the population as primary consumer markets. So we have, there's a bias in marketing. I mean, I work in the marketing research industry, that everything is about youth. 
somebody at some point is going to have to figure out that actually they don't have any money. <laughs> it's the older people that have all the money. And that somehow somebody's going to have to build something that they're going to buy. And the organizations that can figure out at that, that point are the ones that, uh, that are going to uh, probably prosper better than other organizations. But there's no doubt that one of the consequences of all of this is that it's going to have an effect on consumption. So uh, some countries that are experiencing this population decline have recognized it and are trying to uh, promote effort programs to increase family size and increase population growth. Like China has abandoned the one-child policy. I think Russia has some some programs uh, to try to increase population. How effective are those efforts? They aren't. Um, or at least the more accurate way of putting it is uh, they are of limited effect and they are extremely expensive. So um, the, the Nordic countries since the 1930s have been very worried about uh, their fertility rates. We should say at this point, <coughs> the, there's a, a number that is incredibly vital to this debate, and that number is 2.1. A society that produces on average 2.1 children per woman is a society whose population will remain stable. So if your fertility rate is above 2.1, you're going to grow your population. If your fertility rate is below 2.1, uh, your population is going to start to decline. And, uh, and by the late 1930s, um, Sweden was already worried that its fertility rate was dropping below 2.1 and that its population could set to decline. And much of the huge social safety net that the Nordic countries created um, was based, in fact, on efforts to get women to have more children. And they had limited success. Uh, they were able to get their birth rates up to levels that were higher than they had been in the past. Uh, here in Canada, we're both Canadians, um, the, uh, the Quebec government also put in, uh, in place natalist policies that were, that were designed to uh, get women to have more children. But they will have some effect. They might move the fertility rate up a bit, but they don't uh, move it up much. They don't get it back to 2.1, that's for sure. And, um, and they're very, very expensive. So whenever you have a cutback, a recession or something, the first thing to go <coughs> are those policies. And there's a reason for this. It's a reason why China's efforts to switch from a one-child policy to a two-child policy uh, will fail. And the reason for it is, is something that is called the low fertility trap. Uh, Darren alluded to it earlier in a way. When you are not having a child because God commands it, when you're not having a child because your, your family demands it or the state demands it, why are you having a child? Well, you're having a child mostly for personal fulfillment. You and your partner have decided that you want to bring another life into the world. You want to raise someone. You want this to become part of your life's journey. When you have children for that reason, you are pretty quickly fulfilled. Um, you tend to have one or two children. You live in a society where one or two children per couple, or maybe no child, maybe you just get a dog. Um, this becomes the norm. And once it becomes the norm, then everybody's expectations adjust accordingly. Once the low fertility trap is in place, it stays in place, and no amount of government subsidies will convince people to have a child they don't basically want. And this is where immigration comes in, right? The yeah, year. and I want to get to responses and, and immigration as, as, as one of those. Before we get there, though, I want to talk about one other consequence uh, of, of this, which, you know, living inside and working inside a global affairs um, uh, think tank, 
One of the things that that grabbed my attention uh, is when you played out the geopolitical implications of this trend. Um, What does this mean for the distribution of power? Everybody's concerned about China. Well, many people are concerned about the implications of a rising China um, and and shifts in, in power in the world. How does this play into our understanding and our expectations of what's coming? Well, I actually like John's answer on this, because he, he gets asked this question a lot. So, John, why don't you take this one, too? Well, sure. So everyone expects that, as you said, China is about to become the world's largest economy. Um, it is growing um, its its economy rapidly. It's also growing its military rapidly. It's becoming very aggressive uh, geopolitically. Um, but sometime towards the end of the next decade, the Chinese population is going to start to decline. And this is a, a shocking fact that we do not take into account. China's population will, within a very few years, start going down. And once it starts to go down, it's going to keep going down. Um, and it is uh, going to suddenly have all of the challenges and problems that uh, some Eastern European countries, uh, Japan has. Um, it is going to have a, a steadily shrinking population of young people and a very large population of old people um, who will need uh, you know, health care and pensions and other supports. Um, and it will become progressively harder every year for those young people to pay for the costs of those old people. So we don't see one of the big challenges of this century as the rise of China and accommodating that rise. We see the 21st century as one in which we have to accommodate uh, the, the the problems associated with the declining China, because there is nothing more dangerous, as you know, than an empire that's in decline. And I'll just add in one other part of this. Uh, so one of the things that uh, happened over the last, I guess, about two and a half years ago, was the Chinese government recognized some of this, and they decided to get rid of their one-child policy. Mm-hmm. Well, they've had a couple of years' experience. There's been no significant second-child baby boom for all the reasons that... Uh, that John mentioned. But not only that, even if China did decide to turn on the tap in a really aggressive way, they have two problems. It has one of the highest sterilization rates in the world. Hmm. So people have, uh, the UN publishes statistics on uh, on birth control. China has one of the highest uh, rates of sterilization, both female and male in the world. And the other thing is that there's 60 million women missing from the Chinese population as a result of uh, the, the culture of wanting to have sons and, and basically uh, aborting female, uh, uh, female uh, children. So as a result of that, even if they want to turn it on, they don't really have the uh, fertility power in their population to be able to do it. Yeah, that's fascinating. So one of the things, as Canadians, you know this well, one of the things that we spend time thinking about in the U.S. is our own role in the world, and, and we played a very, a very strong role uh, geopolitically. What are the implications of these changes for the United States and its its demographic position? Well, potentially they're very positive, but it's up to the United States. Uh, one of the things that the United States and Canada have in common is a long, rich tradition of immigration. And the only way that you can counter the effects of population decline within your society is through immigration. In the long term, it's the, it's the only way out. Canada... <clears throat> because we're cold and, um, you know, perched on the northern part of the continent, we've always had a challenge to get people to come to our country. So we have a very long tradition of going out and aggressively recruiting immigrants. Um, and that, that policy continues today. Uh, we import about 1% of our population annually, and we have very strong programs in place to make sure that that happens, for example, by recruiting foreign students and automatically granting them citizenship if they want it. Um, the United States hasn't had to work 
that heart. Uh, you are a highly desirable country, and um, you have uh, always had a great many people who want to come to your country. And even though your immigration rates aren't anywhere like Canada's, you still bring in a million people a year, and that's a lot of people. So the United States population should continue to grow, even as China's population is declining and Russia's population is declining. The U.S. population should continue to rise through the course of the century, which is hugely favorable to you in terms of uh, a balance of power, if you don't close the door. And the real debate about uh, Donald Trump and the policies surrounding his administration is, is this part of a longer trend uh, in the United States towards nativism, towards isolationism, towards a blocking of the arrival of new immigrants, not just from Latin America, but from around the world. Because literally, your future as a great power depends on your willingness to continue to bring in new people, because your uh, fertility rate is also well below replacement rate and going down. Yeah, I want to bring Dina in on this point. She runs our public opinion work here at the council, and we've actually done some some work. What do you see in terms of, of public opinion uh, trends when it comes to immigration in the U.S.? Well, I, I think it's an interesting comparison with Canada, too, because our popu- our immigrant populations are a little bit different. The, the people that Canada, as you kind of described it, recruits, is different than the family-based kind of immigration that's prevalent in the United States. Um, but it's funny, I was at a dinner last night with uh, John Mearsheimer, who's a uh, professor at University of Chicago, and he said, you know, it's really interesting, immigration is our ace in the hole. People don't always realize that, but that's how we get a leg up as these changes that you guys are talking about happen um, in societies, especially aging societies, and compared us to, like, Germany, for example, uh, they're another country that's going to be losing population rapidly. Um, Will the public support it? Um, John Mearsheimer uh, thinks it, but how, how about the U.S. public? Yeah, so the public, it's interesting. You would think given the high visibility of immigration in uh, the last election, and we found in we find in our surveys that views of immigrants are highly correlated with support for Donald Trump, um, you would think that maybe there'd be an impact on American public opinion as a whole and that people would be becoming less positive toward immigration. But in fact, we have found the opposite. It gets very buried in the headlines. But um, a growing majority of Americans are not threatened by immigration. They do not see it as a critical threat. Um, They support granting even undocumented immigrants that are here a path to citizenship. But there are Is that a majority of Americans who take that position? Yes, there are. It is a majority. But there are really big differences in partisan divides and I'd be curious if if it's similar in Canada as well. Um, but the Republicans are much more likely to follow President Trump's lead and are majority negative. But even among Republicans, they are divided evenly on whether undocumented immigrants should be granted a path to citizenship. So that's sort of surprising. And I think it's important to realize that those voices that are the loudest uh, tend to take over the story on this in terms of American public opinion, but also that those people who are really against immigration, especially undocumented immigration, feel much more intensely about their views than those who um, support it but do so passively. So, so Daryl and John, I want to bring you in on this and particularly um, in the context of your previous book, The Big Shift, in which you looked at 
um, this issue of immigration and the, the patterns of political support in Canada and actually found that in many ways that there were incentives for conservatives um, to be in favor of immigration. What did you find? Share that with us. Well, if you take a look at the, the pattern of Canadian politics, what's happened over the space of the last few decades is that uh, massive immigration has changed the, the balance of power in the country, which used to be predominantly about reconciling the French and English difference in the country and winning elections by bringing uh, the, the French fact and the particularly uh, in Ontario, our, our, our largest state or province here in, in, uh, in Canada, together with, with Quebec in order to dominate uh, election campaigns. And, and what's happened of late is because of the growth of the suburbs where immigrants uh, are disproportionately uh, moved to, uh, is that they've become a powerful influence in terms of, uh, of election outcomes. So for, in fact, uh, you cannot win an election campaign in this country without winning the new Canadian vote. The interesting part of that is it's really not a partisan vote. Uh, it's one that, depending on how the, uh, the, the Liberal Party, which is our more progressive um, centrist party, or the Conservative Party, our more uh, conservative uh, centrist party, how they position themselves on major issues other than identity, interestingly enough. It usually relates to uh, middle-class uh, prosperity, how that they identify themselves with those issues. They can win that group or lose that group. So uh, they've become the power block in, in Canadian politics, uh, and all of the political parties are really trying to win them in order to win election campaigns. But the interesting thing for me is that immigration to this point hasn't really played an important role in terms of winning or losing that particular part of the population. The real problem that's happening, in, and by the way, this isn't just a Canadian phenomenon, it's a, it's a fairly global phenomenon. You see the same kind of thing where uh, the, you know, it tends to be cities and, and, and suburbs that tend to be uh, strongest in terms of immigration, is that the right has really gone in this direction. You see this in the United States exactly, as Dina was saying, uh, you know, where it's a very partisan, uh, tribal kind of reaction to immigration. But the left has also gone in another direction that isn't particularly productive, in which it's really made this an argument about compassion and how big your heart is. And that doesn't really swing hearts and minds, other than the most partisan people. The thing that really swings people on this issue, and frankly, it's in not just uh, not Canada or the United States, but it tends to be more of a global phenomenon, is if you can convince people that this actually is to the benefit of the country, and particularly the citizens that live within that country. So immigration has a, has a positive effect on um, economic growth for example, or on um, uh, stabilizing your population and allowing you to be able to deliver uh, public services into the future. Those kinds of arguments tend to work a lot better than the ones that are all about compassion. I think a big difference, too, is that the Canadian immigration system is based on the highly skilled um, versus in the U.S. where it's much more of a mix um, because a majority of Americans do support High bringing in highly skilled immigrants, um, which is easier to make that argument, although at the same time it also brings up competition for jobs. So does that resonate with you, John and Daryl, about the reason for some of the differences between the U.S. reaction and the Canadian reaction? Not a lot, I don't think. Um, traditionally, the United States has welcomed large numbers of people. Traditionally, Canada has welcomed large numbers of people. Traditionally, um, Canada has had to recruit aggressively to get them, whereas the United States simply has to, uh, 
you know, keep its doors open and they will come to you. Uh, but the result has been the same. Uh, you call it uh, melting pot, we call it multiculturalism. But each country in its own way has found ways to uh, accommodate wave after wave of new arrivals from different parts of the world, and they very quickly blend in to the to the mainstream of, of the culture, uh, whether it's Latinos crossing um, uh, on your southern border or it's Filipinos um, and Indians uh, coming in, into Canada. So the, the result is the same. And the challenge is the same as well. Um, if you are a country that does not accept immigration uh, because you place a very high value on sort of cultural integrity, then you just can't say, all right, we're going to start bringing in the immigrants. Um, that's um, a Pollyanna way of viewing things. We have to respect and understand that many societies would rather decline then dilute, if that, if that's not too blunt a word, that they would, you know, places like right now Hungary, um, which really needs immigrants, is closing their door to them because Hungary would rather be Hungarian than what it sees as the alternative. Yeah, fascinating. And I should also add, I'll also add in on this, even though you can spend a lot of time talking about immigration, it's a short to medium term solution. And the reason it's a short to medium term solution is that most of the places that are producing uh, uh, the most, the, the biggest diasporas, the, the largest numbers of immigrants, places like India, for example, which has the largest diaspora in the world, uh, are all very rapidly becoming middle class. There are also populations that are increasingly low birth rate populations, and immigration is a young person's game. So. In a certain period of time, in the not-too-distant future, the actual access to flow of immigrants is going to get more and more restrictive because the source countries aren't going to be producing as many. So short to medium term, it's going to help a country, but longer term, it's we're all probably going to have to get used to the idea that our populations are going to be uh, potentially declining and certainly aging. There is one other thing, though, uh, we, need to, we need to bring up uh, just quickly, because there are Please. some people who are going to be screaming at whatever it is they're listening to this on right now, <laughs> which is there is a, there is a third uh, tremendous impact uh, from population decline, and it is environmental, and it is entirely to the good. Um, so if you believe that global warming is, uh, you know, the greatest challenge facing the future of humanity, and you're probably right to believe it, uh, this is good news. Uh, a population that tops out at around 9 billion and then starts to go down will uh, be hugely beneficial in fighting uh, uh, rising temperatures, uh, both in and of itself. That's a great lead to where I want to bring our interview to a, a, a close, which is we've been talking about how uh, your vision of um, a population decline, how it's upending conventional wisdom and practice on, on so many different issues from states' relationships to its citizens to uh, geopolitical competition in the world. And I, I'd like to get um, your view on in the end of the day, as, as you look at, at this phenomenon, is this a moment for optimism or a moment for concern about the future? Well, I think we say in the book, uh, and we may even conclude it, I don't remember what the last sentence of the book is, is it's not a good thing, it's not a bad thing, it depends on how you look at it, but it's a really important thing, and we need to start working it into our conversations about what the future is going to look like. Because at this point, uh, this idea that global population is out of control and will get to over 11 billion people and possibly larger by the end of the century is the dominant meme out there. It is, uh, as we, uh, when John and I discuss it, what we call vertical knowledge, that thing that everybody knows that just is not true. 
So we're going to have to introduce the fact that it is going to be a smaller, older, more urban population that's going to populate this earth, and increasingly so as we go through the century. And we're going to have to just adjust our ex- expectations accordingly. Daryl Bricker and John Ibbotson, authors of a fascinating new book, The Empty Planet, The Shock of Global Population Decline. Uh, And Dina Smeltz right here at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Thank you all for coming on. I think this is an enormously important um, argument that that you've made, Daryl and and John, with big implications. And I'm happy to have had you help us understand uh, both what you see the future as being and its implications. Thanks so much for being on Deep Dish. And thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish. If you like the show... Do me a favor and tap the subscribe button on your podcast app. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would enjoy today's episode, please take a moment, tap the share button and send it to them as well. I'd like to invite you to join our Facebook group, Deep Dish on Global Affairs, where you can ask our guests follow-up questions about anything you heard today or submit questions for upcoming guests and episodes. That's Deep Dish on Global Affairs on Facebook. As a reminder, the opinions you heard today belong to the people who expressed them and not the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. This episode of Deep Dish was produced by Evan Fazio. Our audio engineer is Andy Zarnecki. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon with another slice of Deep Dish.